Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. November 28. On this date in history, in the year 1582, William Shakespeare marries Anne Hathaway. William Shakespeare, 18, and Anne Hathaway, 26, pay a 40-pound bond for their marriage license in Stratford-upon-Avon. Six months later, Anne gives birth to their daughter Susanna, and two years later, to twins. Little is known about Shakespeare's early life. His father was a tradesman who became an alderman and bailiff, and Shakespeare was baptized in Stratford-upon-Avon on April 26, 1564. Some time after his birth of his own children, Shakespeare set off for London to become an actor and by 1592 was well established in London's theatrical world as an actor and playwright. His earliest plays, including The Comedy of Errors and The Taming of the Shrew, were written in the early 1590s. Later in the decade, he wrote tragedies like Romeo and Juliet, and comedies including The Merchant of Venice. His greatest tragedies were written after 1600, including Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth. Shakespeare became a member of the popular theater troupe The Lord Chamberlain's Men, which later became The King's Men. The group built and operated the famous Globe Theater in London in 1599. Shakespeare became a major shareholder in the troupe and earned enough money to buy a large house in Stratford in 1597. He retired to Stratford in 1610, where he wrote his last plays, including The Tempest and The Winter's Tale. Meanwhile, he had written more than 100 sonnets, which were published in 1609. Shakespeare's plays were not published during his lifetime. After his death, two members of his troupe collected copies of his plays and printed what is now called the First Folio. November 29. On this date in history in the year 1942, coffee rationing begins. Coffee joins the list of items rationed in the United States. Despite record coffee production in Latin American countries, the growing demand for the bean from both military and civilian sources, and the demands placed on shipping, which was needed for other purposes, required the limiting of its availability. Scarcity or shortages were rarely the reason for rationing during the war. Rationing was generally employed for two reasons. One, to guarantee a fair distribution of resources and foodstuffs to all citizens, and two, to give priority to military use for certain raw materials given the present emergency. At first, limiting the use of certain products was voluntary. For example, President Roosevelt launched scrap drives to scare up throwaway rubber old garden hoses, tires, bathing caps, etc. in light of the Japanese capture of the Dutch East Indies, a source of rubber for the United States. 
Collections were then redeemed at gas stations for a penny a pound. Patriotism and the desire to aid the war effort were enough in the early days of the war. But as U.S. shipping, including oil tankers, became increasingly vulnerable to German U-boat attacks, gas became the first resource to be rationed. Starting in May 1942, in 17 eastern states, car owners were restricted to three gallons of gas a week. By the end of the year, gas rationing extended to the rest of the country, requiring drivers to paste ration stamps onto the windshields of their cars. Butter was another item rationed, as supplies were reserved for military breakfasts. Along with coffee, the sugar and milk that went in with it were also limited. Altogether, about one-third of all food commonly consumed by civilians was rationed at one time or another during the war. The black market, an underground source of rationed goods at prices higher than the ceiling set by the Office of Price Administration, was a supply source for those Americans with the disposable incomes needed to pay the inflated prices. Some items came off the rationing list early. Coffee was released as early as July 1943, but sugar was rationed until June 1947. November 30. On this date in history, in the year 1974, Elton John's Greatest Hits reaches number one. Elton John's Greatest Hits began a 10-week run atop the Billboard 200 pop album chart, on its way to selling more than 24 million copies worldwide. Elton John was born and raised as Reginald Dwight in suburban London, and if you rearranged his DNA or his childhood environment just a bit, he might have become an RAF fighter pilot instead of one of the biggest pop stars of all time. His father, Stanley, wanted young Reginald to follow his footsteps into the British military, but his mother Shirley Dwight's Elvis Presley record sparked his interest in rock and roll, and her uncritical devotion made it possible for the bespectacled boy to pursue his dream of rock stardom without discouragement and he displayed remarkable tenacity in pursuing that dream, even to the point of ruining his vision by wearing a pair of Buddy Holly-style eyeglasses until his eyes adjusted to their strong prescription. An accomplished pianist with a gift for composing original melodies, Reg Dwight toured extensively with a band called Bluesology while still a teenager in the mid-1960s, but his path towards stardom really began when he landed a 9-to-5 songwriting job at DJM Records in 1967 and was paired with a lyricist named Bernie Toppin. Taking the stage name Elton John in 1969, Dwight began recording original material written with Toppin while still turning out bland commercial ballads by the hundreds as part of his day job. His debut album, Empty Sky, in 1969, failed to catch on in the UK and was not released in the United States until years later. But his follow-up, Elton John, in 1970, was a breakthrough smash thanks to Your Song, his first top 20 hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Over the next four years, John would produce new materials at a rate that is utterly astonishing by today's standards. Prior to the November 1974 release of Elton John's Greatest Hits, he released six full-length studio albums, Tumbleweed Connection in 1970, Mad Man Across the Water in 1971, Honky Chateau 
1972, Don't Shoot Me, I'm the Only Piano Player in 1973, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in 1973, and Caribou in 1974, and scored 14 American Top 40 hits, 10 of which were included on the greatest hits album that reached number one on this day in 1974. Over the subsequent decades of his phenomenal career, Elton John would release further volumes of greatest hits, sell tens of millions of albums worldwide, and establish an American chart record that may never be equaled by placing at least one hit on the Billboard Top 40 in each of 30 consecutive years, from 1970 through 1999. December 1. On this date in history, in the year 1990, the channel makes a breakthrough. Shortly after 11 a.m. on December 1, 1990, 132 feet below the English Channel, workers drill an opening the size of a car through a wall of rock. This was no ordinary hole. It connected the two ends of an underwater tunnel linking Great Britain with the European mainland for the first time in more than 8,000 years. The Channel Tunnel, or Channel, was not a new idea. It had been suggested to Napoleon Bonaparte, in fact, as early as 1802. It wasn't until the late 20th century, though, that the necessary technology was developed. In 1986, Britain and France signed a treaty authorizing the construction of a tunnel running between Folkestone, England, and Calais, France. Over the next four years, nearly 13,000 workers dug 95 miles of tunnels at an average depth of 150 feet, which is 45 meters, below the seabed. Eight million cubic meters of soil were removed at a rate of some 2,400 tons per hour. The completed channel would have three interconnected tubes, including one rail rack in each direction and one service tunnel. The price? A whopping $15 billion. After workers drilled that final hole on December 1, 1990, they exchanged French and British flags and toasted each other with champagne. Final construction took four more years, and the Channel Tunnel finally opened for passenger service on May 6, 1994, with Britain's Queen Elizabeth II and France's President François Mitterrand on hand in Calais for the inaugural run. A company called Eurotunnel won the 55-year concession to operate the channel, which is the crucial stretch of the Eurostar high-speed rail link between London and Paris. The regular shuttle train through the tunnel runs 31 miles in total, 23 of those underwater, and takes 20 minutes, with an additional 15-minute loop to turn the train around. The channel is the third longest rail tunnel in the world, after the Seikon Tunnel in Japan and the Goddard Base Tunnel in Switzerland. December 2. On this date in history, in the year 2001, Enron files for bankruptcy. The Enron Corporation files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in a New York court, sparking one of the largest corporate scandals in U.S. history. An energy trading company based in Houston, Texas, Enron was formed in 1985 as a merger of two gas companies, Houston Natural Gas and InterNorth. Under Chairman and CEO Kenneth Lay, 
Enron rose as high as number seven on Fortune magazine's list of top 500 U.S. companies. In 2000, the company employed 21,000 people and posted revenues of $111 billion. Over the next year, however, Enron's stock price began a dramatic slide, dropping from $90.75 in August 2000 to $0.26 cents by closing on November 30, 2001. As prices fell, Lay sold large amounts of his Enron stock while simultaneously encouraging Enron employees to buy more shares and assuring them that the company was on the rebound. Employees saw their retirement savings accounts wiped out as Enron's stock price continued to plummet. After another energy company, Dynagy, canceled a planned $8.4 billion buyout in late November, Enron filed for bankruptcy. By the end of the year, Enron's collapse had cost investors billions of dollars, wiped out some 5,600 jobs, and liquidated almost $2.1 billion in pension plans. Over the next several years, the name Enron became synonymous with large-scale corporate fraud and corruption as an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Justice Department revealed that Enron had inflated its earnings by hiding debts and losses in subsidiary partnerships. The government subsequently accused Lay and Jeffrey Skilling, who served as Enron's CEO from February to August 2001, of conspiring to cover up their company's financial weaknesses from investors. The investigation also brought down accounting giant Arthur Anderson, whose auditors were found guilty of deliberately destroying documents incriminating to Enron. A court later overturned Anderson's conviction for shredding Enron's accounting documents and claimed that the trial judge's instructions to the jury failed to require the necessary proof that Anderson was aware his actions were wrong. In July 2004, a Houston court indicted Skilling on 35 counts including fraud, conspiracy, and insider trading. Lay was charged with 11 similar crimes. The trial began on January 30, 2006 in Houston. A number of former Enron employees appeared on the stand, including Andrew Fastow, Enron's ex-CFO, who early on pleaded guilty to two counts of conspiracy and agreed to testify against his former bosses. Over the course of the trial, the defiant Skilling, who unloaded almost $60 million worth of Enron stock shortly after his resignation, but refused to admit he knew of the company's impending collapse, emerged as the figure many identified most personally with the scandal. In May 2006, Skilling was convicted of 19 of 35 counts, while Lay was found guilty on 10 counts of fraud and conspiracy. When Lay died from heart disease, just two months later, a Houston judge vacated the counts against him. That October, the 52-year-old Skilling was sentenced to more than 24 years in prison. December 3. On this date in history, in the year 1947, a streetcar named Desire opens on Broadway. Marlon Brando's famous cry of, Stella! first booms across the Broadway stage, electrifying the audience at the Ethel Barrymore Theater during the first-ever performance of Tennessee Williams's play, A Streetcar Named Desire. 
The 23-year-old Brando played to the rough, working-class Polish-American Stanley Kowalski, whose violent clash with Blanche Dubois, played on Broadway by Jessica Tandy, a Southern belle with a dark past, is at the center of Williams's famous drama. Blanche comes to stay with her sister Stella, Kim Hunter, Stanley's wife, at their home in the French Quarter of New Orleans. She and Stanley immediately despise each other. In the climatic scene, Stanley rapes Blanche, causing her to lose her fragile grip on sanity. The play ends with her being led away in a straight jacket. Streetcar, produced by Irene Mayer Selznick, was directed by Elia Kazan, shocked mid-century audiences with its frank depiction of sexuality and brutality on stage. When the curtain went down on opening night, there was a moment of stunned silence before the crowd erupted into a round of applause that lasted 30 minutes. On December 17, the cast left New York to go on the road. The show would run for more than 800 performances, turning the charismatic Brando into an overnight star. Tandy won a Tony Award for her performance, and Williams was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. In 1951, Kazan made Streetcar into a movie. Brando, Hunter, and Carl Malden, as Stanley's friend and Blanche's love interest, reprised their roles. The role of Blanche went to Vivian Leigh, the scenery-chewing star of Gone with the Wind. Controversy flared when the Catholic Legion of Decency threatened to condemn the film unless the explicitly sexual scenes, including the climatic rape, were removed. When Williams, who wrote the screenplay, refused to take out the rape, the Legion insisted that Stanley be punished on screen. As a result, the movie, but not the play, ends with Stella leaving Stanley. A streetcar named Desire earned 12 Oscar nominations, including acting nods for each of its four leads. The movie won for Best Art Direction, and Lee, Hunter, and Malden all took home awards. Brando lost to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen. December 4. On this date in history, in the year 1783, George Washington bids farewell to his officers. Future President George Washington, then commanding general of the Continental Army, summons his military officers to Francis Tavern in New York City to inform them that he will be resigning his commission and returning to civilian life. Washington had led the army through six long years of war against the British before the American forces finally prevailed at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. There, Washington received the formal surrender of British General Lord Charles Cornwallis, effectively ending the Revolutionary War, although it took almost two more years to conclude a peace treaty and slightly longer for all British troops to leave New York. Although Washington had often during the war privately lamented the sorry state of his largely undisciplined and unhealthy troops and the ineffectiveness of most of his officer corps, he expressed genuine appreciation for his brotherhood of soldiers on this day in 1783. Observers of the intimate scene at France's tavern described Washington as suffused in tears, embracing his officers one by one after issuing his farewell. Washington left the tavern for Annapolis, Maryland, where he officially resigned his commission on December 23. 
He then returned to his beloved estate at Mount Vernon, Virginia, where he planned to live out his days as a gentleman farmer. Washington was not out of the public spotlight for long, however. In 1789, he was coaxed out of retirement and elected as the first president of the United States, a position he held until 1797. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for November 28th through December 4. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.